Since last Friday, we are approaching the end of Moses' message to the people. Not that we're finishing Deuteronomy in these chapters necessarily, but there's a transition in his sermon. And really what Moses is doing now at this point is he's trying to give final instructions to the people of Israel as they initially enter into the promised land. And what we learned last week is that one of the things that God wanted the people to do as they stepped into his perfect will for their lives was that they were to, once they conquered all the enemies, once they planted their own homes and they grew their own crops, to take the first fruits of their harvest and to bring it to the house of God and to worship the Lord and acknowledge him as the one who brought them there and who provided for them. It was an initial act of worship that God was looking for. But that wasn't the first thing. Because there's something that God wanted the Israelites to do even before that. There's something that God had in mind for his own children to implement before even that, though that was of great importance. And that's what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 27. We're going to read the first few verses to see exactly what the Lord has in mind. And it will do us great good for our practical lives as well. Look at verse 1 of chapter 27 with me. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. He's saying that because he just preached from the beginning of the book pretty much till now of practical things that they were to be obey. And he reminds them, not just Moses, he has the elders with him. Because we know that Moses is not going into the promised land. His leadership is going to be transferred. And so now he has the backing of other leaders that are echoing his authority. But verse 2 is where we're focusing. And on the day, on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law, when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. This was one of the first things they needed to do. Before conquering all the enemies, we know they had to conquer some to even get into the promised land. Before establishing their homes and building their nice little fences and decorating their rooms and getting their... No. Before any of that, the people needed to take huge stones, plaster them with a certain substance so that they can easily write on the whole commandment of God as Moses has described and plant them in a way in which they would benefit from as a memorial forever. Now, people debate, were these stones inscribed with the whole book of Deuteronomy? I mean, that's a lot of stones. Those are big rocks. But some are convinced that this is mainly the Ten Commandments. That's what they had in mind here. Now, we can debate that, but what's important is to understand it's the Word of God. And what's very important for us to understand is three things concerning this initial step. Why, how, and where. You know, sometimes we look at these details in the Bible and we go, okay, okay, let's just read on. Let me get to some meaty stuff, the clear things. But these kind of things, we should ask questions. Why are they doing this? How are they doing this? Because the Bible is telling us how they're doing it. And where are they doing it? And all of those things gives us revelation with our relationship with the Word of God. Why are they doing this? Why are they going to take huge stones and inscribe the commands of God? Well, I think it's connected to verse 1. He says here, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. 
And following that, he tells them what to do concerning the word of God. Because whether we want to believe it or not, this was supposed to be the means for their obedience, a knowledge of the word of God. This was the way in which they would please God, a knowledge of the word of God. And so these stones would be a general reference point for all the nation to have access to the scriptures. They would be able to be face to face with the word and understand this is God's character. This is his will. These are his commandments. We are his people. This is how we relate to him. What you realize in the Bible is that God from the Old Testament to the New has always desired to rule his people by a book. By a book. Written and inscribed from ancient days to modern days. God in his wisdom wants to provide the revelation of who he is through inscription. Through, through written words for many practical reasons. And what the people needed to do was take their time to do this. Do you realize that this was an investment for the people? Taking a bunch of rocks, big stones, plastering them, and then taking the time to write it, not knowing how much content they're writing on there, but that's an investment. Because it was the very thing that would help them obey God. And I look at that and I think to myself, and I think we should think all for ourselves, what kind of investment do I make with my relationship with the Word of God? You can't love Jesus and not love God's Word. Many people talk like that. I love Jesus, but they have literally zero investment into the Word of God. And that is a contradiction. God has chosen to reveal Himself through His Word. And to not love God's Word, I'm sorry to say, is to say something of your love and my love for God. You'd be amazed to know how much professing Christians know about everything else in the world except God's Word. And many excuses can come from that. But the reality is, there are people who are so in-depth in knowledge concerning celebrities, sports teams, fashion, politics, news. Are those things evil? Not at all. But we kind of come up with excuses of why we can't know certain things of the Bible, yet we seem to have just as much energy and passion and excitement for everything else except God's Word. But this was a demand on their investment because it would reflect on how much they actually love God. When you love God, you love His Word. When you love God's Word, you make investment for God's Word. Does that mean that we will not be challenged in our devotion to God's Word? Does that mean that sometimes you will wake up and not want to read God's Word? No, it doesn't mean that you're going to have this perfectly seamless attention to the Scriptures. But part of the reality of being born again, brothers and sisters, is that you begin to love God's Word. I can tell you that before I was saved, I grew up in the church my whole life. I sat in pews. I, I, can, I can, if you were to give me the smell of church, I would know it. That makes sense. I knew what church smelt like, never mind preaching and songs. I knew it all. But I can tell you this about me, up to the age of 20, you could not pay me to read my Bible. You could not pay me to read my Bible. In fact, I remember this thing, the only thing close to coming to reading my Bible is when the preaching was so boring, I would take the Bible from the pew and look at the book of Revelation to read all the scary stuff as a kid. I was like, this, this is scary. That was my means of entertainment to get through the service. But when I got born again, I wanted the Word of God. Like a baby wants milk. And it wasn't pulling my hair to read the scriptures. You didn't have to put a $20 bill in my Bible to convince me to read. I wanted to get in this Word. Were there times of temptation? Was my body weary at some days, some weeks? Absolutely. But I can tell you something happened in here 
when I gave my life to Christ and I craved his word. And so it is with every person who gives their life to Christ. Why? Why are they doing this? Because it's tied into how they're going to obey God and relate to him. And that's why we need the word of God in our lives as well. But how are they doing this? Now notice what they're doing here. On stones. On stones, not on trees, not on wood, not on paper, though later things are inscribed in such forms. But on stones, to say what? What, what do stones represent symbolically? Anybody? Foundation. Foundational, absolutely. Permanence. There it is. Both are right. Permanence. So the fact that these scriptures were written on stones is to declare God's finality and the foundational understanding of His will for His people. It's not going to change. It's going to stay forever. God isn't going to change His mind, as culture would like to say, but it is firmly fixed in the heavens, never mind stones, as Psalms tells us. So there's an idea here that it is unchanging and it is already determined. But I want to look at verse 8. Scroll down to verse 8 quickly. It says something about what they were supposed to do. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law. What does it say? Very plainly. Does anybody have another translation that says something else? New King James says very plainly. King James, very plainly. Very plainly. God desires for his word to be easily understood. And I think if this is a charge to anybody, it's a charge to anybody who has any level of teaching, gifting, or ministry in their lives. The job of a teacher and a preacher is not to sound philosophically sophisticated when it comes to handling the Word of God. It's not to impress people with mysterious language to keep them more confused and more in the dark than when they came in. It's to take the Word and make it plain, to make it understandable, to speak the language of the people. And that's a temptation for the pastor, for the evangelist. You know why? Because part of their vocation is to study, study, study. And just not because they're more spiritual, because of the, the freedom that they have, they're going to dive into more theology than the average person. They're going to dive into languages that the common person will not necessarily know. But his job is not to come up and show everybody how spiritual they are with their language and their study. It's to take all of that and translate it into simplicity of language so that it can be easily digested. That makes sense. So God wants it to be inscribed very plainly. The preacher, the teacher, the Bible study leader, the Sunday school volunteer ought to take God's word and break it down in understanding who their audience is. Now, that doesn't mean the person can't be deep. That doesn't mean that we're shallow in our understanding of the Bible and we just preach simple, basic truths. No, it's even the deep things that you're able to break down and let people go, ah, I understand. I understand what God's trying to say. And God gives illustrations to people for that. God gives all these different things so that it can be plain for the people to understand. God doesn't want his people to be lost in his word. They want him to understand how. But then we come to the where. Look at what it says here in verse 4, that the, that the stones were to be placed in a specific location. And when you have crossed the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal. So there's a mountain that these are supposed to be placed on. Mount Ebal, and then he tells them how they should plaster them again. It's later in this chapter, chapter 27, that we're going to see how the people of Israel are going to be split into two groups, and half of the tribes are going to be on one mountain, 
and the other half of the tribes are going to be on another mountain. And these mountains are going to symbolize God's blessings being pronounced and God's curses being pronounced. Mount Gerizim is where the blessings are going to come from. Mount Ebal is where the curses are going to be pronounced. We're going to see that later on in this chapter. But what we see from verse 4 is that these stones are to be placed on the mountain, not of blessings, but on the mountain with the curses. That's interesting. And there's a relationship between those two. Why? Because as the people would have access to this mountain throughout the generations, what they will be facing is God's law, but their very feet are going to stand on a mountain that symbolizes the curses that will fall on anybody who breaks God's law. Everything about what God is doing for His people here is visual aid. It's to actually interact with the senses so that it can get deeper into the soul. And so He literally places these rocks, these stones on a mountain that speaks of, no pun intended, the mountainous curses that will come upon somebody who deliberately breaks these things for their own sinful pursuits. And so there's an element of trembling here that they are faced with what God desires and if they willfully reject it, they are literally standing on the ground that speaks about what will fall upon them if they choose to disobey. These are why details in the Bible are not to be dismissed. We see how God is strategically preparing His people. Verse 5, something else happens in chapter 27. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. So, God is going to associate His law with warning. That by disobeying, you are going to experience His curse. But God doesn't want to just associate His word with warning. God wants to associate His word with our joy. I think we understand the first one more than the second one. We look at this and we go, this is a legal thing, and if I break it, then I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to get into some spiritual jail or pay a spiritual fine, and it's going to hurt me. Sure, that's true. But what God is going to do in verse 5 is, is He wants to now associate God's Word with their glee. Why? Because it's going to be a celebration. He says, I want you to take an altar in verse 5. And then I want, which, what is an altar? It, it's simply a structure that provides an ability to make sacrifices on it. And so take this altar, and you're going to provide a burnt offering and a peace offering. And then what, what's going to happen? You're going to rejoice. You shall eat there, verse 7, and rejoice before the Lord your God. So, so this is what God wants you and I to do. To approach the Word of God with a sense of a trembling. That if I choose to live my life apart from the Scriptures, it's going to go very ugly for me. But also, here I am before God's Word, and this is an exciting thing, because if I choose to live according to God's Word, there will be blessing on my life. There will be life in my life. You know, many people are existing, but they're not living, right? And so he wants them to celebrate in this moment as they are initially setting up these stones. And what I see in the Word of God, and I'm sure you've seen it over and over again, is that there is a very clear connection between my relationship with the Word of God and how it affects my internal state of happiness. Bible study tonight, think of some scriptures. What scriptures come to mind where you understand when I get this Word in me, it affects how I feel and how I walk this walk in terms of joy. Can you think of any scriptures? They're very famous ones. 
What chapter in the Psalms is all dedicated to that? 119. What did the psalmist say in verse 7? I praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your statutes. I'm going to praise you with an upright heart when I understand your word as it is being given to me very plainly. It's going to do something to my joy. Not just Psalms 119, a very famous one. I love it because it comes from a man who is known as the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a man who wept and wept and wept for many reasons, and here's one of them, because nobody took his message seriously, and it was a message from God. Nobody would repent. Nobody would take the route of blessing. They all wanted to do their own thing. But Jeremiah says something in chapter 15, verse 16, about the Word of God. And as you read this, please, uh, tonight, ask yourself, is this how I feel with the Word of God? Ask yourself, is this how I feel when I come to the Scriptures? Your words were found. You know what that means? He... He found them. And once he found them, it says, I ate them. And your words, your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. That language is very foreign in our generation. Because I'll say this this generation suffers from an epidemic, biblical illiteracy. Biblical illiteracy. Many Christians that even attend services on a weekly basis do not know their Bibles. But Jeremiah here says, I eat your words. As though I come to it like food and I realize that this is going to be an enjoyable feast and it's going to sustain me and it's going to strengthen me, but there's even flavor to it. Listen to this. He goes, when I get your word in me, there's a flavor of joy in my heart. There's an actual excitement. There is a sense of delight, like my soul is settled because I have just intaked something of God's revelation for my life. We have to tap into, listen, if you want to know the secret to getting into this consistently, it's that joy. It's that delight. And then he says what? For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. There's a revelation of your identity and who you are and who God calls you to be when you know his word. When you know his word. And so God in Deuteronomy 27 says, I don't want you to just feel as though you have to approach this because if you don't, you're, you're a bad Christian. What a terrible way to relate to God. I want you to relate to this word because you know it is for your joy. Listen, if there's any mark of a Christian being truly a Christian, it is how they relate to this book. We have to drill that into our minds. We have to understand that this is the very central piece to how we sit in fellowship with him. And Jeremiah knew it, David knew it, Moses knew it, Paul knew it. It's through the written word. You think, I don't have that kind of expression towards God. Ask him for it. Because the same psalmist who says, I rejoice when I learn of your statutes, he said in verse 18, open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things out of your law. It's going to be a battle some days. It's going to be a fight some days. Sometimes entertainment will be more pulling than this. But when you really tap into the deep wells of the Bible, you will tap into a joy. I can guarantee you that. I could tell you on a personal level, uh, because the way I read, I read from cover to cover. I just go through it book by book. 
and there you read New Testament, you finish, you go to the Old Testament. People have different reading plans. But for me personally, if I can just talk as a brother, I get excited not only when I finish a book, sure, but when I start a new one, I'm like, oh Lord, what are you going to say in this one? It's like starting a new chapter. You're just like opening a new door and you're wondering, what treasures am I going to find? What treasures am I going to find? And there are some times where I finish a book and I think to myself, I need to read it again. I feel like I missed some things. I feel like there's some things I didn't really get. I need to go back in and go back all the way to the beginning. And it's a joy. It's not a job. I want to know him. I want to know his word. I want to be familiar. I want to master the scriptures. Not so I can boast the knowledge, so I can boast of my knowledge of him, as Jeremiah said. It's available to you and me. But look what it says here concerning how they were to build this altar. It's very specific. And there you shall build an altar, in verse 5, to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall, not, you shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. So here's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to build this altar. Remember, he wants to associate their joy with the word. But they were supposed to take stones as they were and build it without wielding any tool, without touching it, designing nothing, just natural. And to build an altar, to put a sacrifice, and to worship God. Here's the question, why? Does anybody have an idea why? Why couldn't they chisel it? Why couldn't they design it? Why couldn't they make it look more pretty? Why is God saying, don't touch it? I want it to be natural. Why? Anybody have any ideas? Exactly. As we're going through 1 Timothy on Sunday, God has given a blueprint for how we worship Him. God has given us the instructions of how we should approach Him. And so for Him to ask for this instructions is to say, Man, don't put your hand on it. Do not determine how you ought to worship Me. And I think it goes even beyond that. I think what God is saying here in His wisdom is that He doesn't want man's abilities, man's design to draw people away from what's going on. He doesn't want the people to be drawn to the altar. He wants them to be drawn to the very thing that's being sacrificed on the altar. Who is it going to? Not the thing that's being used. Not the instrument, but who God is. And the temptation that would increase is that as man would take and design, I'm going to put some cherubim here, I'm going to put this and this in here, and make it this beautified thing, it would call people to give glory not to God fully, but to man. And God is not interested in sharing His glory. And you might be thinking, well, what about the tabernacle? Right? Didn't the tabernacle have palm trees and gold and blue and red and all these different designs, right? But think about the tabernacle. Was it man's idea or did it come from heaven? It came from God. God told Moses and those who were to build how to build the tabernacle. It was a man conjuring up their ideas. Look, how, how can we make it beautiful? So everything even about the tabernacle was designed by God so that even if they were to admire the artwork, God would get the glory. So when it came to the altar, don't touch it. Don't put your design on it because God is not interested that praise would be split in two ways. He wants it all for himself. And so they were to allow this to happen without their tempting of infiltrating and infecting the whole idea. So here's a practical thing. For worship leaders, for worship leaders, it's important that you prayfully seek God, that as you worship, people would be directed to the Lord and not to you. And for those who are worshiping, it's important to also, at the same time, direct your gaze 
upon the Lord and not the instruments that are being used to help you praise God. Right? That's what this whole altar thing is teaching us. Uncut stones, no tool upon them. This is all about me. It's not about what you can do to get attention for yourself. God is very jealous for his glory. Now we see something turning around, and this is really the paramount, not only of these chapters, but of the book of Deuteronomy. In verse 11, on the same day, so we learn up to this point that they were supposed to take these stones, write the law on these stones, they were supposed to build an altar and worship God and rejoice and celebrate, and then God wants to do something that will be so memorable that they would never forget it as a generation, hopefully it would be passed down. God is going to do something that's going to be actually an incredible sight to see. And it's going to require the nation's participation in it. So look at verse 11 of chapter 27. That day Moses charged the people saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And he names six tribes, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare all the men of Israel in a loud voice. So this is what's supposed to happen. The tribes were divided in two even groups. And as we said earlier, six of those tribes would climb up on a mountain called Gerasim. And there's a valley dividing to another mountain called Mount Ebal. And six of the other tribes were supposed to climb on Mount Ebal. And you have the Levites that are going to do some declaration. Now, how this is played out, we don't really know. Because this group, Gerasim, is supposed to proclaim the blessings of obeying God. Then you have this group that's going to pronounce the curses for disobeying God. But what we see here is that the Levites seem to do most of the pronouncing. And what the people are supposed to do more is respond by saying, Amen. Is that what we see? Look at verse 15 down to verse 26. What you see is different statements being made. And the people's jobs was to what? Say amen. And amen, if you want a simple definition, if you've said it before you go to bed after your prayers, if you said it after you've prayed over your meal, what amen simply means. Does anybody have an idea? I agree or so be it. Both are right. So be it. So when we say something, or when somebody responds even to a truth being declared from the pulpit and you hear somebody just peep out an amen, what they're saying is, so be it. So be it. Or, or I agree. And what's going to happen here is that the Levites are going to pronounce some curses, some sins that warrant a person to be under, not the curse of a witch, not the curse of some devil or the devil himself. Listen to the profound truth of this. A curse that would be given by God. And the people are going to say amen to these things. They were to agree in this act on something that many people can't agree on. What is it? A balanced view of God. They're going to say amen to, unfortunately, what many people in our day cannot say amen to. And that is what? A non-contradicting expression of the character of God. See, if these mountains symbolize anything, they, they symbolize the goodness of God and the severity of God. The mercy of God, the judgment of God. The blessings of God, the curses of God. And you know what we have in our day? 
you know, throughout history, really, you have many people that like to camp on the Blessings Mountain. God is love. God is good. God is kind. God is compassionate. You're right, but there's a whole other mountain to who He is. And what you have, if you have another group of people that love to camp on the Curses Mountain, the judgment factor. God is a judge. God is holy. God will throw people into hell one day. If you don't get it together, God will smile. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you got people that camp on that mountain. And when you mention anything about love, they go, yeah, but God is holy. Both are right, but we need the balance. We need the balance of understanding who he is. Because if you emphasize just on the kindness of God, you run the risk of people who think and begin to now convince themselves that God is okay with their sinful behavior. That, that God is okay with my decisions that contradict his will because surely I am his child and he won't do anything about it. Or, or surely we are all God's children and one day we're all going to be reunited with him because he understands our fallenness. That's the danger of camping on that mountain and not building a bridge to the other one. And if you camp on the mountain of Ebal, the curses, you run the risk of people who live in absolute terror and fear in relationship to God. There is no idea of love. There is no motivation of genuine intimacy with Him. In fact, the only benefit that a person who camps themselves on this camp and on this mountain, the only positive is that if I obey, I'm not going to get judged. There's nothing more to that. It's just, I'm not going to get judged if I obey God. That's, that's the risk. Now let me say this. Either one are equally as self-destructive as the other. If we do not take the totality of God, we ourselves will not be whole. We need to understand the fullness of who He is. And this is what this is all about. They're about to get a taste of understanding two sides of God. And I love how they split the tribes evenly. Six and six. You got six on one, you got six on the other. And they are standing upon the revelation of who He is. And this is not Old Testament. See, see, part of this understanding of understanding the balance of God, they got the mountain of blessings, they go, that's Jesus. That's New Testament. Mountain of blessings, that's Jesus. Mountain of curses, that's all the Old Testament. That's God. He was in a bad mood. Does the New Testament teach that? Or does the New Testament say something? If we can put up Romans eleven twenty two, this is New Testament. This is from the apostle who knew the forgiveness of God, being, as he called himself, the chief of sinners. And yet in Romans eleven twenty two, 22, Paul says this about God. Note, he's talking to Christians, by the way. Note, take note, study, understand. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. See, so many of us say amen to the kindness of God, but we don't say amen to the severity of God. And many people say amen to the severity of God, and they don't say amen to the kindness of God. And what Paul is saying is, consider both. That God is extremely kind, but he is also extremely holy. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, and he explains what that means concerning his audience, which we will not dive into. And this is what they're going to do. Come back, coming back to Deuteronomy 27, 15 down to verse 26. We're not going to take the time to read all the curses. But it can be summed up in verse 26. Look at verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So if you want to just summarize what these curses are all about, 
not just the list here from verse 15 down, but if you and I disobey one of these things, no matter what the law says, small or big, in our eyes or not, doesn't matter, you and I fall under God's curse. The people of Israel fall under God's curse. Now, here's a natural question, right? What does that mean? If you are cursed, if I'm cursed for disobeying God's law, I want to know what it means to be under God's curse. You ready for this? Look at chapter 28, because these are connected. It'd be hard to separate them. Look at verse 15 to chapter 28. Verse 15, now flip your page, I'm sure you'll have to, and look at verse 68. From 15 to 68 describes what it means to be under God's curse. From verse 15 of chapter 28 to verse 68, you have in great detail what it means to be under the displeasure of God and His righteous and holy judgment. Can we summarize it? Sure. If you read this, and I encourage you to read not just that, but the blessings that are found in the first few verses of chapter 28, what you will see is a suffocating and seemingly inescapable experience of everything in your life becoming chaotically and confusingly destructive. If there's any language that comes to the, the curses that God describes, it is chaos mingled with confusion. And I say inescapable because it seems like there's not one area in a person's life that finds some kind of relief when they are found in that position of being under God's curse. And so I think it's worth not going through every verse at this moment because we don't have the time to, but let's look at some to at least get a flavor of what it looks like. Look at verse 22 of chapter 28. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. Verse 28 to verse 29 of the same chapter. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness, and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. Verse 33. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all of your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. Verse 49 of verse 50. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. Look at verse 53. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb. You know what that means? You shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. So the siege would be so intense, they would be so locked into their towns that they can't get out to get resources and they would be so hungry as a result that they would even find relief in eating their own children. Now, we can look at the blessings and they are wonderful. In fact, they are heavenly. In verses 1 down to verse 6. Of chapter 28 but we don't even have to go there for me to ask this question and for I'm sure get a hundred percent I hope 
the same answer. If I were to ask you today, imagine yourself as an Israelite in that day. If I were to ask you as a leader, Moses were to come up and say, would you want to be blessed or cursed? If, do you want blessing in your life or do you want the curses that we just read out? Would anybody in their right mind say, you know, the curses sound kind of interesting? Nobody in their right mind would say, I think I'm going to take the curses. And I'm sure the Israelites, when they were standing on those mountains, whether they were proclaiming those curses and it being echoed from that valley, or the leaders themselves were declaring it and they were supposed to say amen, I'm sure in that moment when this was to happen, which does in Joshua, the book of Joshua, I'm sure every single person would have been like, I want God's blessings, I don't want his curses. Any sane person would. But here's the thing. If you're familiar enough with your Old Testament, you realize that Israel was cursed. That a nation did come and take them away from their land. That there was plagues. That there was distress. That there was destruction. How did a people who I'm sure thought to themselves, I will do everything in my power and by God's grace to not allow curse to come upon my life. How do they go from that to only just a few generations to now open themselves up to God and the measure of His grace dwindling only for Him to unleash these dreadful things? How? Take 15 seconds to look through chapter 28. If you've read the chapter, perhaps you've seen it. There is a verse there is a verse in this chapter that tells us why the people, in prophetic fashion, would allow curses to come upon them. Just take a few seconds. It's as though Moses stops with the Levites, they would have stopped at one point to describe why this would happen. And it's found tucked in the middle of this chapter in verse 47. Look at verse 47 and you and I will see why the people would stumble their way into this kind of a state. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. That's why. Now, the consequences to sin in our day look differently than it would have for Israel. Remember, this is under the old covenant to a specific group of people that were in relationship with God, the Israelites. Sin has different consequences in our dispensation. But the reason for sin and the ugly outcomes of sin being real in our lives, the reason for it is the same as it was for the Israelites. Because you did not, Serve the Lord your God with, not just serve the Lord your God, look, with joyfulness or gladness of heart. Why? Because of the abundance of all things. So there's a sequence here. It all started when things came into their lives. When they began to become prosperous, when more things were added to them, good things even, what happened was God's blessing God's gifts, that can be in the form of what? Income, 
possessions, ready for this one, a person, a person. What began to happen is their joy and gladness in God was now being transferred over to the objects of God's blessing. And listen to this very carefully. When you begin to find joy or gladness in something or someone else more than God, that is sin. And when you begin to do that for a longer period of time, not only is that sin, but it will lead you into more sin. And when that sin is there, whatever joy it offered in the moment, it will turn into sour bitterness over time. So you see the sequence, right? God gave me things. God allowed me to experience things. And my joy now was being removed from Him to these things. Listen, when you begin to lose joy and gladness in God, that is the first step to a downward spiral, I promise you. That's it. The loss of joy and gladness. See, God could have said because you did not serve the Lord your God, but He didn't say that. Because you didn't do it with joy or gladness. And the human heart is designed in such a way that if you do not desire God, if you don't love God and enjoy God and want to pursue Him with joy, your heart will find something else to find joy in. Our hearts are magnetized towards something to give us some sense of purpose and glee and bliss. And if it's not in God, you will find something else. But if it's not God, it will destroy you. It's going to go somewhere. You know what that means? That means you and I as the people of God have to fight for our joy in God. It's a matter of survival. I have to do two things. I have to do something offensively and I have to do something defensively. Meaning, I as a Christian need to do something to feed my joy in God. I have to. I got to do something to fuel it. And I got to do other things to protect it. Because the moment I lose my joy and gladness of God is the moment I open myself to other things. And the moment I begin to do that, there are ugly consequences to it. And there are very practical ways of doing that, right? I mean, we could talk about spiritual disciplines. We can There's so many things for you and I to feed that joy and to protect that joy. And listen, even if it's a day, if I begin to sense that my joy in Christ is dwindling or becoming numb, put the alarm on and do something about it. Don't stay there. Be uncomfortable in that state. Don't be condemning yourself, but be, let there be a holy discomfort in that place. I can tell you this, call it what you want, but if there's anything in life that begins to rob my joy away from Christ, i got to do something about that thing. If there's something that's beginning to steal away my affections for the Lord, i got to realize that the moment that happens is the moment other things can happen that you will never even imagine will happen. It all comes down to joy and gladness in God. And it can be as practical as this, getting in your car because that morning you were numb as numb could be towards God and saying, Lord, I don't like the way my heart is this morning. You got to do something about it. I need you to give me joy towards you. I know it's not supposed to be this way, and I know sometimes there's spiritual warfare, but God Almighty, do something. Do something to my own heart, God. And we think sometimes that God is just going to sprinkle something on us for joy to return, and He can do something by the power of His Holy Spirit, but oftentimes it takes practical decisions, like what? getting around people who have joy in God. You know, like let it, get, let it rub off on you. Find people who find joy and gladness of God and stay there long enough, talk to them long enough, let them speak into your heart long enough and watch how that joy is transferred. 
Reading your word, yes. Listening to the word, yes. Reading about testimonies of things that God has done to stir your heart afresh for what he can do in your life and through your life. We got to fight for our joy. It's a matter of survival. This is instrumental. Man, if there's a gem in the book of Deuteronomy, it's this one right here. Take it and seal it. Nail it on your wall. Nail it on your conscience. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness or gladness. That's where everything went downhill. That's why you're experiencing all these curses. Israelites, it began because you didn't guard that. How true it is for the person today. Now, there's a deeper picture here as we're about to close in a moment. All these curses and all these things here, this list of stuff, tells us something even more profound. Look here in verse 65 of Deuteronomy 28 down to verse 67. As I read this, think of what this sounds like. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Listen to the language here. Now go to verse 67. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening, and at evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. I was reading these verses, and maybe your mind went there, but I thought to myself, although these were God's earthly punishment upon a people that were in covenant with him, this sounds like the description of another place that's from another world, hell itself. Anybody go there with their minds? No rest at all? You know, it talks about in hell that people would want to seek death, but they will never find it. What kind of a place do you need to be in in which death is the source of your comfort? And this is a very descriptive way of describing the curses of God that not will just come upon a people in the Old Covenant, but will come upon, listen very carefully tonight, will come upon all people if they are apart from Jesus Christ. And this is on, a, this is on an earthly level. We're, there's a whole other realm. And although these are, again, unique to Israel, the realities of them, they are to all who would be under God's curse. Is it possible to be under God's curse today? Who would say yes, in this sense, for disobeying God's law, even if it's in the Old Testament? Is it possible today? And I'm seeing heads nodding yes, because it is possible. Not that it would manifest in the way it did to Israel, but that to be under God's curse, ultimately, the ultimate expression of God's judgment is to express it in an eternal state called hell. That is God's curse. Now, how do we know if somebody's under God's curse? Listen, in Deuteronomy 27 28, Paul reaches back there and pulls out a verse in the New Covenant to present it to Christians who were tempted to live by obedience to the law as a means for their salvation. So if we could put up Galatians 3.10, we've covered this in a series in Galatians. What's going on with the churches of Galatia? They were being tempted by Jews, saying, yeah, Jesus died, but you need to also obey the law to be saved, to attain eternal life. And Paul goes to Deuteronomy 27, and he comes here to verse 26, and he pulls it out in Galatians 3.10, and he goes, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. This is New Testament. Are under a curse. 
For it is written, what we just read, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That must have been shattering to the Christians that received this letter. You know why? Because it's not enough to know the law. It's not enough to even love the law. It's not enough to admire the law. It's not enough to say that you obey some of the law. Paul says this, and he quotes what Moses said. If you don't obey all of the law, if you break even one of the laws, you are under God's curse. And I love to give this simple illustration because often people ask, how is it that if I break one sin, one sin, you're telling me one sin and I'm going to go to hell. One sin under God's curse. Is it fair to say all sins are equal? You're telling me that one little measly thing that doesn't affect anybody will take me to an eternal state of hell. One. And James says that, doesn't he? He says if you break one, it's like you broke them all. You're a lawbreaker. And I love to give this simple illustration. Perhaps you and I talk tonight and we, get, we don't know each other and I extend my phone number to you. And I give you those 10 digits. If you get one digit wrong, you're not going to be able to get in contact with me. You don't need all nine to be wrong. You don't need all 10 to be wrong. All you need is one digit to be wrong. All you need is to replace that seven with a one and you try calling, you're not going to reach me. Just one. And so it is with God. All it takes is one law to be broken and you will never be able to reach him. Just one. Not nine, not all ten, not half. Just one law. And you'll never be able to make contact nor relationship with God. So the question is this. If anybody would want to escape God's curse, what would they have to do? So this is a warning not to those who would want to live in sin. That, that, they will be judged as well. But this is a warning to those who would want to try to perform to get right with God. Here are my efforts. I'm going to obey everything from this book to the T so that I can please you. And God says, if you do that and you break one, you're under my curse. That is the righteous standard of God. Listen to this. This is how holy God is. One, that's all it takes. Guess what? We all broke it. More than once, I'm sure. So that means we're all under God's curse. And there is a solution. Let's think about what we just covered. Go back to Deuteronomy. What mountain were the curses supposed to be pronounced from? Ebal. Not Garrison. Ebal. Remember when they were initially supposed to build an altar? Where were they supposed to build it? On Ebal, not on Garrison. So here's another reason for them building an altar on Ebal. Is that there would be a prophetic hint and a prophetic nudge from God. That the only thing that will be able to cover the mountain of curses on your life is a sacrifice. Because when they build that altar, they were supposed to give a burnt offering. And if we study Leviticus rightly, we know that these offerings are foreshadowing of who? The person of Jesus Christ. I want you to build an altar on Mount Ebal, not on the mountain of blessings, on the mountain of curses. 
And this simple act of a sacrifice, because every sacrifice points to the final sacrifice in Jesus. Imagine the picture. You have this altar on a mountain that represents the judgments of God, but this sacrifice will cover every curse in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in Galatians, not 3.10, but 3.13. Paul continues his statement about what it means to be under God's curse and how to escape it by saying in verse 13, concerning Jesus Christ. What does he say? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's in Deuteronomy 21. So the mountain of curses that we just read in some way fell upon the person of Jesus Christ. He became a curse. He experienced God's judgment. As though he was a lawbreaker in every sense of the word. As a substitute for you and I. And they got a prophetic hint of that because God strategically asked them to build a sacrifice on a mountain that symbolized his judgments. To show that one day Jesus Christ would be hung on a tree and would experience the mountain of God's judgment upon himself so that you and I can stand on Mount Garrison forever. Think about that today, please, because this is what the gospel is and your eternity depends on it. If you refuse to believe that Jesus Christ became a curse for you, you are under a curse yourself. And you might not experience God's curse to the extent as we just read in Deuteronomy 28, but it is coming in an eternal expression one day upon all men. But God so loved the world that he sent his son. He sent his son as a representative for you and I. And he drank the wrath of God every single drop so that you and I could know eternal fellowship with God. And all you have to do is realize that, acknowledge that, believe that, and trust in that. That's what God is asking of you and me. So on this snowy day, you're here tonight, and you're hearing God's payment and redemption for your soul. Because we're not just doing a study of God in the Old Testament, of how he used to do things. We're talking about how this connects to you and I today in 2020. And here's the reality. How many people do you think are stroming around or maybe even tucked into their beds tonight watching some kind of a movie, getting snugly with their family, are under God's curse? Life is dandy and fine, right? But because they've rejected the one who became a curse, they will one day know God's curse. And unfortunately, I think many people are going to experience that curse because many people are not making God's word very plain and true and simple and describing the totality of who God is. I would hate you with a perfect hatred if I just talked about Gerasim and didn't talk to you about Ebal. I would be, one, accountable to God, but two, I would be your worst enemy in doing that. You realize that? That the most loving thing that a preacher can do is present the love of God and the wrath of God in love to a people that desperately need to hear it. And so I ask tonight at this Bible study, did you receive the revelation that Christ 2,000 years ago became a curse for you and did you accept that? Or are you still trying to work your way towards him? Because as much as it might seem like a blessing to do so, God is not interested in your own efforts. He's not interested in you cutting stones and decorating your own life to impress him. He wants a sacrifice. 
And you yourself laying yourself on that altar will not please him because it's tainted with sin. There needs to be a perfect one who would stand in the gap for you and me. That was Jesus Christ. And it's yours today for you to know a joy and a peace. And to you, it's for you and I to know heaven on earth as much as we can before we actually get to heaven. And all you have to do is receive it. Let's bow our heads. Let's just meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's all we need to do to stir ourselves to worship. But more importantly, if you're here tonight and you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, make that decision tonight. Lord, I'm tired of working for my salvation. I'm tired of trying to impress you with my life and my own righteous deeds. I surrender and acknowledge that I can't do it, that Christ did it, and I humbly receive it. I humbly receive it for my own life. Lord, I want to know your blessings. I don't want to know your judgments. And if you are saved in this place, would you make tonight just another way of offering to the Lord thanksgiving and say, God, renew my joy, renew my gladness in you because I know that this is the very thing that will preserve me from finding it in something or someone else and leading to my own demise. Give me a rejuvenation of joyfulness and gladness of heart. Help me understand the reality of you, how I can know you, how you can use me, how I can grow in understanding. Lord, I want to know that this is a joyful thing. This is a joyful thing. And I need you to help me understand that. And God is willing to answer that. Just stay there in the next few moments we're going to sing, but talk to your God and fellowship with him.